Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Tom, how are you, sir? Matthew, nice to see you again. Long time. So February, very long time. Yeah. You've been keeping well. I've been keeping well. We've uh, we've been very very busy uh, since we last talked to you and um, uh, plugging away. Hopefully, I'll be in your neck of the woods. You know, by the end of the summer, I just had two shot my second Pfizer shot. So hopefully, we'll um, I'll get over to your beautiful area one good, at some point. Good, good, good. I hope you don't get trapped here this time. Um, no. Right. So I'm going to say to people, we've spoken uh, a couple of times before. We'll put the links to those conversations below. Go and see those if you want to understand the business plan, strategy, team, uh, and what these guys are trying to do. Today, we're going to get an update on Eska Eska. Um, but before we do, um, can you just give us a little update what's happening in Peru with the you know, La Victoria project? Obviously, Peru, the headlines coming out of Peru are... Um, I guess, worrying some people. Uh, what's the reality on the ground? Well, from the standpoint of the recent election, I believe that uh, Pedro Pedro Castillo, Castillo, who's more of the, on the left left wing side of things, I believe he has actually won. I know there's still a, there was a recount. I'm pretty sure he's moved moved ahead. I mean, marginally by a percent. Uh, however, because of that close margin. Uh, the, the lower house uh, will not have the strength. He will not have the support of the lower house, uh, you know, to move on radical left-wing moves such as increased taxes and, uh, you know, confiscation issues at all. So I think it'll be business as usual, uh, especially from the, you know, the main operators, some of the bigger, uh, 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 at least uh, copper gold operations that we see in Peru. So I, I, from our standpoint, uh, you know, again, the La Victoria project in Peru is not our focus. Obviously, it's ISCA, ISCA but we are working closely with the community uh, to move forward on a inaugural drill campaign on the sweet spot in our 90 square kilometer uh, land package in Peru uh, called San Marquito. And uh, our partners from Australia that can earn a 25% interest uh, are very motivated to, you know, uh, complete a drill campaign as soon as we get the, the land rental agreement uh, contract. We're very close to that. So I, I don't think it's going to change from the external standpoint, from the, from the election. Uh, I'm not too concerned at all. Yeah, I think we're hearing the same sorts of things that this is a political posturing and uh, once things have died down, it will be business as usual. Uh, happening a lot in South America at the moment. Um, but I th thought it was worth checking in with you. Anyway, we're here to talk about ISCA, ISCA today, your Bolivian project. Um, you've been drilling since we last spoke. Um, you're going to give us a little update. So what have you been up to? Well, we've been busy. Uh, the uh, Leduc drillers... Uh, we have three drills now, uh, you know, that uh, contracted through Leduc. They, uh, we have two surface drills and uh, one underground drill that are active. I mean, we're averaging production rates of close to 100 meters per drill, 300 meters a day. Um, so I think we're close to 14, 14 to 15,000 meters to date since we initiated the, the inaugural drill campaign back in September of 2020. So it's, 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 
it's been a fantastic, uh, from the production side, it's been very, very uh, productive. We've, we have Dr. Osvaldo Arce, who's, uh, you know, boots on the ground, who's overseeing everything in Bolivia and, and back and forth with Dr. Pearson, who I will introduce to uh, your audience today, uh, who's our senior VP of exploration. He and uh, Osvaldo work very closely together, having known each other for many years. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're very, very pleased. Uh, we have a minor issue, nothing to do with us, but it's more external in, in that the COVID situation is hindering our turnaround times in regard to our assay results uh, at the assay lab, the final lab in uh, Lima, Peru, due to uh, the oxygen argon gas uh, restrictions that are needed actually for, for assaying. Uh, but also the hospitals need them for COVID patients. So that's the only sort of setback temporarily. Uh, but other than that, yeah, we're very, we're coming in with some pretty interesting, you know, long, uh, you know, long intervals of uh, commercial material in many cases uh, from the last few uh, press releases since I've seen you, Matthew. So yeah, we're very, very pleased with what's going on. Right. Okay. And the other thing you've done, actually, before you introduce me to Bill, um, is you raised some money, twenty-five million bucks, which is good news. Who came in? What? What? what who? What did you see there in terms of the the structure of the register? Now has that changed? Then? Well, the re- yeah, the register now, registry now that uh, I would say is probably sixty percent institution, uh, due to these pa- past two uh, bought deal private placements. Uh, this recent one, well, t- over two months ago now, was uh, basically spearheaded again uh, by Haywood Securities, but we brought in also Cantor Fitzgerald uh, and also uh, Cormark. Uh, but we did actually pick up a couple of pretty large institutional accounts from actually London, England. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you can, there's still a lot of retail uh, and we're, we're thankful for that, that are on our register. But yeah, we're starting to get some institutional presence now. Okay. Um, That's interesting that, you know, that the UK is going to step in, um, into well, this as I'll well. I'll tell you what I think is starting to happen here. Um, you know, this is deemed, we've always sort of uh, looked at this as more of a silver polymetallic multi-metal type deposit. But we're coming in with a lot of tin, yeah, in, especially in our central breccia pipe, which is which is basically the third breccia pipe uh, that we've discovered. There seems to be, uh, you know, a, quite a bit of tin that we're, we're witnessing. And I think tin, I think the, the British uh, community understand the, the dynamics of the tin market, how tight it is. So there haven't been major tin discoveries in quite some time. And I think this might be something uh, very uh, of strong interest to a lot of people these days. So. Bill can expound on that somewhat, but uh, yeah, so we're getting a good uh, cross-section of, of uh, institutions now coming into the story. Okay, interesting. Um, well, you better introduce me to Bill. Yeah, so I'd like to, um, now that we're, you know, I mean, basically Aloro's activities, 95% focused in on the ISCA ISCA, um, you know, I thought it'd be a good time to introduce Dr. Bill Pearson to your audience. Bill, I've known Bill since the 90s. We used to actually were involved on some sort of emerging plays uh, way back, you know, back in 95, 96 in Colombia and Ecuador. So we've known each other a long, long time. Uh, 
uh, just prior to uh, before the BREX fiasco. However, um, Bill has over 40 years experience uh, in the, you know, he, he was also the, the founder of the, or one of the main drivers of the Geoscientist Association of Ontario. Um, Bill was instrumental in the huge discovery, the add-on discovery of the Jacobina deposit when he worked for Desert Sun. Um, and again, a doctor of, doctorate of uh, geoscience. He's had a lot of experience on Cordilleran and Dan epithermal systems. So, you know, he and I stayed close together. And uh, so I was very pleased to bring him on uh, two or three years ago into Aloro. And uh, so he oversees our uh, operations from Toronto uh, in conjunction and consultation with Dr. Osvaldo Arce, who's on the ground. So I'd like to introduce Bill to your audience and perhaps ask him, uh, you know, some, uh, some uh, questions on our development. Hello, Bill. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. How's that for an introduction? It wasn't too bad, was it? Well, uh, no, it's not too bad. I, <laughs> I've had a lot of practice. Uh, you know. <laughs> your, your reputation precedes you, Bill. You, you, you didn't need it. You didn't need it. Um, well, lovely, lovely to meet you. And you're going to sort of take us a little romp through, um, Eska, Eska. Um, I'm keen to understand what you were tasked with doing. So when you when you got first introduced to this project, what were you seeing and what are you now seeing in terms of the way that you feel you need to approach it? Well, it's an interesting question because, you know, this all started because I do have experience with in Bolivia. Uh, Osvaldo is the expert on metalliferous ore deposits on, in Bolivia. In fact, uh, to his full credit, he spent the lockdown and uh, doing a second edition of his landmark book, uh, which Tom and I were one of the people who helped sponsor publishing it. And, uh, you know, both of us felt that it was a good time to get into Bolivia. I never doubted the potential there. Um, the politics have changed uh, quite considerably. Luis Arce is doing a good job. In fact, Bolivia seems to me one of the most stable countries in South America right now. Uh, he's been very clear he wants foreign investment. Uh, we saw companies like New Pacific go in there. Uh, you know, Bob Buckins has just uh, moved in and bought the San Bartolome. And of course, uh, Sumitomo has been there for many years, and as has Pan American. Um, so it seemed like an opportune time. So I said originally to Oswald, well, let's see what we can come up with. Uh, and he came up with this GISCA, and, and that was in 2019. We did a due diligence program on there, which Osvaldo did. And I remember the first pictures he sent back of the uh, portal of the attic. And my first reaction was, wow, these rocks are hammered. And, and I think what your audience needs to appreciate is how important systems are when you explore. I'm a system guy. So investors will look at numbers. I look at the system. If the system is there, I can find the resource. And, and even though what Edwin Viegas, the owner was doing, you know, he, he had a, uh, I don't want to really call it an artisanal. It's a, it's a higher level than artisanal, uh, but he was mining high grade uh, lead zinc silver veins and, and being rather frustrated because you know, they weren't going too far and he was kind of 
disappointed on results. And that's where Oswaldo got brought in originally on this. So when I looked at it with Oswaldo, the channel sampling, and we did some innovative uh, work. Uh, I do a lot with Western University uh, and we did, uh, I had them do a, a synchrotron study. Very, very, well, that's a really, really interesting uh, particle accelerator they use uh, down in um, University of Chicago. And it allows you to do rapid analysis of samples and gives you mineralogy. It's an amazing machine. And uh, my colleagues at Western have a tremendous setup. And when those results came back, it told us, hey, this is one big system with some really high areas. And, and, and of course the target here was always bulk deposit. If you wanna find a bulk deposit, you want to have widespread strong alteration and mineralization. You, you wanna basically have a base level and then you have the higher grade areas. So uh, that was where we started. And then when we, and the other thing that was remarkable was starting off drilling, the first drilling on this property, never been drilled before from underground. I mean, I've done lots of underground work at drilling in my career, but I've never done it as the first thing. <laughs> anyway, and as I'll show you, that happened to be very fortunate that we did start underground and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, so when we started underground, we, we of course started around the working area and the third hole we put out to the east, bingo, we hit a breccia pipe. Well, and, and Osvaldo was seeing every deposit of consequence in Bolivia says, wow, I've never seen this anywhere else in Bolivia. So we knew we were onto something, even though this pipe was not that large, it was maybe, uh, you know, 150 by 200 meters. Well, of course, instantly we said, wait a minute, breccia pipes, they don't usually occur by themselves. There's got to be a cluster. And we did bring in a surface rig because we, we sort of got uh, beyond the extent we could do from the underground. And we did a few more holes. And while we were waiting for results there, Oswaldo and I said, well, we got to get some holes out to the west. And, and Oswaldo had identified a, uh, a target from satellite imagery that uh, we thought might be a breach pipe to the, the southwest. So we stuck a hole out there and we ended up with 180 meters of just absolutely beautiful mineralized breccia. It was clear it was a big breccia pipe. And I remember telling Tom, 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 we got to press release this. This is really, really significant. That is the only press release in my entire career on a drill hole that I've put on based on visual criteria only. Uh, and of course, subsequently we put out the assays on this uh, in, in January 26th. And of course, that was our discovery hole, 15. And it was interesting, as, as soon as we started hitting this breccia pipe, I said to Oswaldo, man, you got to get our geologists out there and figure out what's going on. So they went out there early the next morning and spent all day there, came back just before dark. And all they said was mucha breccia, mucha breccia, mucha breccia. And that's when we put out the map where we thought, hey, 
Um, Santa Barbara is probably 400 meters in diameter. And there was another one, Central, which was even bigger, four by 700. So that's what we uh, started with. And then because of the shape of these breccia pipes, I, as you can imagine, they're, they're sort of oblate cylinder-like things. Uh, it's not like you're drilling a big structure that has gold mineralization. So you're going along the structure. So what I was able to do was we stuck the drill in the middle and we did radial drilling uh, because there is no preferred orientation in a breccia pipe. Um, and so we, that, that's where this whole thing got going. And of course, we started to hit more intersections. We've hit a lot of good holes and, and I'll show you in this one. Well, let's do that. Muchas, muchas. Let's, let's get into it. Okay, so here's a, here's a, uh, a geology map here. Uh, basically what we have at Iskiska is we have what's called uh, a caldera complex. And you can see the scale here. It's 1.8 by 1.6 kilometers uh, in, in diameter, a very, very extensive. Uh, and it's got very, very widespread silver tin polymetallic. It, it's, a, it's a porphyry epithermal style complex, but as I'll show you, uh, it's much different. Like, forget about what you know about copper porphyries, gold epithermals elsewhere in the Andes. Bolivian style of mineralization is um, different. And of course, the age of mineralization is similar to uh, our other famous neighbors. But as I'll show you, there's some interesting differences. So you can see this is a plan map here. The initial discovery up to the north we call Wauricaza. Uh, that's a small pipe. But then we found Santa Barbara which is in yellow, which is, as I'll show you, much bigger than the original 400 meters, and then central to the south. Uh, we also have a big target down in the south we're starting to drill now called Porco, which again is interpreted from geological uh, mapping and satellite uh, uh, analysis. So again, I bring you back to the scale here. It's really, really, Huge. The other thing, as I'll show you, is the mineralization is just not restricted to the breccia pipes. In fact, there is a huge envelope around these pipes uh, that is several hundred meters or more. In fact, if you look at our discovery hole, hole 15, you can't tell where the, the day site ends and the breccia starts from just looking at the assays. Uh, next slide. Now, this is a really, really interesting map. Uh, we just released this this week. This is a magnetic map of magnetics. It's using a technique called analytical signal. Uh, and basically, you can see that I've superimposed the outline of the breccia pipes. And you can see how the and and you can see the ring structure of the caldera. And you can see how beautifully those structures are picked up by the magnetic survey. And you can see that the big breccia pipes, Santa Barbara, Central, and our Porca target are all marked by lows. And indeed, 
it looks like central and porthole may in fact merge at, uh, at depth. And you might ask, well, okay, why are they blue? They're blue because the hydrothermal alteration, which is very strong, has destroyed all the magnetite. And so consequently, when you go over those areas, the magnetic signature is very, very flat. Uh, so this was a very exciting survey result, and it shows that uh, our interpretation of the geology is, is, is bang on. And it certainly confirms Porco as a major target. And you can see the sort of pinky areas, like Wawakazu, for example, is sitting in a pink area. And you might ask, well, why is it pink? And the other ones are, are blue. Well, the reason it's pink, as I'll show you, there's a very, very major stage of structural upgrading and remobilization that is really making Santa Barbara and Central, and I think will make Porco. Uh, but it's not present. We only have two of the three stages at Wawakaza. So the alteration is there, but nowhere near as intense as where it is uh, uh, on the other three big uh, pipes. You can also see there's a very interesting area in the Northwest there that's, that's uh, also blue. Well, uh, we're not sure that may be an extension of Santa Barbara. That's something we we have to uh, you know, explore. So this was a really, really good survey. We are gonna start some additional um, geophysical surveys later this month. Um, we're gonna use a technique called induced polarization. Um, and basically this is a technique where you shoot a current into the ground, you turn it off and you see how long the current uh, is held by the rocks. So if you have, um, and also this gives you uh, how resistant the rocks are. And uh, so the big feature we're looking for, which is the key in this deposit, is to track the sulfides. Where we have sulfides, we have mineralization. More sulfides, more mineralization. And uh, the chargeability that you get from IP uh, is just a beautiful technique to, uh, to track it. So those, those will be ongoing. But this magnetic map is one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. My geophysicist was ecstatic about this. But do, do you, just, sorry, Bill, just, you, you kind of got me thinking there. When people look at these maps, you, you automatically go for the red because you think, oh, red is good, blue not good. But you've just explained that's, that's not the case anymore. You have to come up with a new way of coding it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, you do have to remember, and there's a fairly technical reason behind using this analytical signal. When you're down in the equator, the magnetic field is very flat. So whereas people will be used to looking at a total field map up in Canada, it doesn't work in South America, uh, especially near the equator. So that's why you use the analytical signal, but you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the lows are important. It would be analogous, for example, if you were looking for uh, kimberlite pipes up in the territories or none of it. You're looking for circular loads. Um, same idea. So, you know, the, this is very, very useful in refining our target definition and also confirming that our 
geological uh, interpretation was really bang on. You know, our, our team in the field did a tremendous job mapping these out. Um, so very, very pleased with these results. Um, next, uh, go to uh, 21. So let's look at a little more detail. This is a plan map showing our two big breccia pipes, uh, Santa Barbara in the yellow, uh, central in, in the gray. You can see the green around there. Uh, that's dacite. That's part of the dacitic domes that these breccia pipes are going through. And interestingly, Santa Barbara is quite different from central. Uh, Santa Barbara is probably a little higher level feature and the mineralization in Santa Barbara is silver, lead, zinc, and tin. Whereas in central, it's much more a silver tin plus some gold. Uh, it's much, it really has very, very little in the way of lead and zinc. And, and that's because the rock types are different. So in, in Santa Barbara, they're primarily dacitic fragments. So this breccia pipe has come up through these dacitic domes. Now, Santa Barbara is about 800 meters across or along by four to 500 meters across. We've drilled it down to 700 meters. So if you can imagine when the explosion went off that created this thing, uh, it was immense. You would not have wanted to be in southern Bolivia. And that's uh, roughly around 15 million years ago. And that breccia is an absolutely perfect host for mineralization. And, and I'll explain a little later how we think all this formed. Central is a little different. It's what we call an intrusion breccia. Um, it's come from deeper down, and that's part of the reason why it's more of a, uh, has more uh, tin. The other very interesting thing is you see that uh, Santa Barbara adit, and I'll show you a section. Um, that adit is one that Edwin Viegas uh, excavated. And, you know, the results in there for him weren't very good because the mineralization is all in the stock work and he actually hit the Santa Barbara breccia pipe at the end of the adit. But none of those things are very good for artisanal miners. But as I'll show you, very, very good for uh, potential miners like ourselves. Uh, go to 22. So then let, let's look at a, 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 a long section here. You can see the index map at the bottom. Uh, you can see the section line to the, from the southeast to the northwest. That's going right along the axis. And uh, you can see on here in the middle our discovery hole, uh, which was 129.6 grams silver equivalent per ton over 257 meters. And it has uh, silver, gold, zinc, lead, copper, tin, uh, quite a remarkable hole. Now, one of the questions people ask me is, well, why wasn't this thing found before? I mean, the Spanish had thousands of people out there prospecting. Uh, there's been companies in Bolivia before. 
Well, the reason is if you look at the top of the section, you'll see oxide zone, sulfide zone. Well, when you're in the oxide zone, all the metals, especially lead, zinc, and silver, are all leached out. So if you go to the surface there and you sample, you won't get anything. But the fact that we started underground drilling, as you can see, we started in the sulfide zone. So if we had gone into this property and done a conventional, say, two, 300 meter line of holes uh, at 45 degrees, we would have been very disappointed because we wouldn't have got deep enough. So the fact that we started underground drilling was a huge plus. And of course, we understand that now. Um, and interestingly, the one thing we do get values of up in the oxide is tin, because tin is already an oxide, it's cassiterite, and it, it doesn't move. The other thing we put out not too long ago was the channel sampling on uh, the Santa Barbara at it. Now, a lot of people don't understand channel sampling. They think, oh, we just went along and, you know, hit a chip of rock here and there. Well, I can tell you it took the team three weeks to do, and they channel sampled it continuously. And you can see the tremendous <clears throat> results there, uh, 442 grams silver coulomb per ton over 166 meter with very, very high silver, uh, and, and we had a, a section here of uh, remarkable stuff that was over uh, 1,000, over 56 meters with 446 grams silver per ton, 9% lead, 1.16, spectacular. And you can also see that that mineralization is in the day site outside of the mineralization. So what you have here, we have this mineralization looking at a longitudinal section here. It's up to about 500 meters thick. You can see at the top, 800 meters long. And you'll notice it crosses all the rock types. And I'll explain to you in our little later slide why we think uh, that has happened. And this thing is just growing and growing. We, we need more drilling to the west, um, obviously, uh, which we will do after we do our downhole. But again, the thing that I like to emphasize about ISCA ISCA is the scale of this. This system is huge. Uh, go to 24. So let's uh, just go to, this is another, a really, really nice cross section. Uh, you can see on the index map down there, it's going on the Northwest side of Central through the eastern part of Santa Barbara. And you see the scale, that's one kilometer you're looking at there. And again, this zone is 500 meters plus uh, thick. Now we put out not very long ago, our first hole on the central Gretchen pipe and uh, DCN01, you can see the results down the hole, lots of multiple mineralized inter intercepts. Very, very nice one, 196 grams silver equivalent. And that's 150 silver, 0.1 tin, 0.05 gold. Notice no lead zinc. Uh, and that also had a very high section in there over 27 meters. Uh, the other hole we released during that, we, we don't have the assay results yet, but visually it was so 
remarkable um, that uh, we uh, decided to put it out was hole 10. And hole 10 was collared in the center of the Santa Barbara Betcha pipe and drilled at minus 60. Uh, and we drilled it down to 1,019 meters, our, our deepest hole we had. Uh, we hit this remarkable zone about 500 meters long of quite amazing sulfide mineralization. And I'll show you in the next slide shortly, uh, just a few pictures of the course, you can get a, uh, a feeling for it. So when you look at this target zone and, and bear in mind, this is still very, very early days at Iska Iska. We're looking at a target zone here that is a kilometer across, 800 meters long, 500 plus meters that is entirely open. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're drilling, obviously, as Tom mentioned, we have three drills going, excellent production. Uh, I've worked on a lot of projects over the years, but I have never worked on one. We have not had one blank hole in this system. Uh, it, it's quite remarkable. So when you talk uh, about scale, just, Bill, just, just on the scale side, I think, just answer that question, because that's, that, that's really interesting. That's really interesting, um, certainly to me, um, because we've, we've seen some of the results that come out, and I appreciate there's a lot more coming through. You know, you're sort of almost halfway through a drill program here, and the numbers are great. It's a polymetallic. It, it, they look great, but the scale of the opportunity is what was going to allow you to compete and, you know, to allow you to stand out. So when you say, oh, the scale here, how do you know that? What have you done? Well, I know that because I've done enough drilling and I've, I can now, like when we put this section out, we had enough drilling to outline where we thought the uh, mineralized system is. And, and obviously, yes, there's some variability in it. Um, there's sections that are higher grade. Um, there's sections that are lower grade but there's no sections that have no grade. It is basically continuously mineralized through that um, whole section. And when you're dealing with this kind of mineralized um, section zone, the important thing is to realize that as you get more holes in, you will get definite, you will get better definition of the higher grade areas the more higher grade areas, you're gonna lift the overall grade because you know that whenever you put a hole in this thing, you're probably gonna get at a minimum, you know, 50, 60 gram silver equivalent. And then the higher grade areas kick you well over hundred. And, uh, you know, one of the things we've always talked about on this is, you know, $100 US per ton rock. Well, you're very, very nicely in that range, uh, particularly with obviously the tin price being up, silver being up. Uh, it, it's a powerful combination. So, you know, uh, this is not a, a uniform type of deposit. In fact, most deposits aren't. Um, but what really makes any bulk deposit is to have a very good solid background mineralization 
And then within it, you have higher grade zones. And when you take the whole package, bingo, you're in business. That's exactly what I see here. Um, obviously, we've got to do some more fill-in drilling um, to get to a resource here. Um, but the picture evolving is, is very, very exciting. And if you sit there and you do uh, the math, uh, you, you, you very easily get to, you know, very, very large potential tonnage. Still early, needs some more drilling. But uh, all the holes we have done continue to add and refine the picture and continue to expand this target. Absolutely. And at what point do you start bringing the network in and trying to understand, you know, how, how you approach the, this from that perspective? You mean from a... a metallurgical work. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, as we said a number of times, our objective here is to get to a uh, an NI43101 resource by late fall. Uh, we will certainly, I think, be able to do that on Santa Barbara, as long as we get our assays from the lab uh, and immediate environs. We won't cover everything by then. Um, but once you get, uh, and it will be likely mainly an inferred resource because our drilling is wide space. Uh, at that point, once you have uh, an NI43101 resource inferred, um, you can go ahead and look at doing uh, preliminary economic uh, evaluation. And we're already doing some important, uh, you know, preliminary metallurgical tests, which will be a, a, a big item here. So, you know, that is something that uh, I would certainly see moving forward on in, say, early uh, 2022. And I, over the years, I've worked on an awful lot of economic studies from everything from uh, preliminary uh, economic um, uh, evaluations to, through to feasibility studies. I've done mine openings like Desert Sun at Chacabina. So uh, one of the things that I make sure is we do the upfront work from the geological end that you need to move this project forward uh, in the downstream end. So I, I think you'll cert certainly see that, um, uh, you know, move forward. But at the same time, we're gonna be continuing to drill and expand um, uh, this resource. If we can confirm Porco, then you can see that this will be a true giant. Right. I just want to quickly explain to your listeners. Um, can you go to the model slide there, uh, Hermena? Just for one second here. This is a, this is a model from uh, uh, Oswaldo Arce's book here. Uh, this is a typical porphyry epithermal complex, and he's put the positions of the different major deposits in, in uh, southern. Uh, Bolivia, Cerro Rico de Potosí, of course, is a world famous biggest silver deposit, produced some two and a half billion ounces over the years. You can see the scale on the left, one kilometer. Well, you can see that Iskisk is sitting in this same nice sweet spot here. And in fact, ultimately, I think we will find uh, mineralization at different levels 
uh, as we get more drilling into the system. Just go to the next slide. So this is a model that Oswaldo put together. Now, I think it's really important that your readers realize, and I certainly learned this, the geology of Southern Bolivia is totally different than the rest of the Andes. Um, we have the famous Bolivian tin belt, which really has no parallel in the rest of the Andes. Um, and because of that, the style of deposit is quite different the, from what people are used to. So this was why I got Oswaldo to put together these sort of cartoons. So we're really looking at three stages of mineralization. And the first stage is tin, tin porphyry. And tin is a high temperature metal forms deep in the crust. So that's, that's the first take. And all through this, a big tin porphyry has been driving this process. The second stage are the dacitic domes. And these domes are cut by these huge breccia pipes. And again, imagine the immense power. And during that stage, you get extensive epithermal silver lead zinc tin mineralization. And the third stage that really, really makes this gasket is this extensive structural remobilization upgrading. The Andes is a very, very active tectonic regime. And so what's happening is you're getting uh, rebrecciation of the brecciation, you're getting uh, structures out into all the rocks, and you're moving and concentrating these metals, silver, lead, zinc, and, and tin. And that's why you are seeing mineralization in, across all the rock types. It's, you, you've moved metals out of their primary deposition site and you move them into uh, much broader. And then to get to the present Dave picture, um, you know, Santa Barbara is probably more or less where it is. Obviously there was some stuff eroded. Central, that came from much deeper and it's been uplifted and the whole thing has been, had this remobilization event. Somewhere down below, there is a big uh, tin porphyry. The other thing to note about these breccia pipes is this really seems to be unique to Iskiska. And you might ask, well, why are they in Iskiska and not elsewhere? Well, they probably were elsewhere, but Iskiska, they are preserved. And it's because you see that brownish rock, that's quartz sandstone, and in those breccia pipes, there's solidification, all of which are uh, erosionally uh, resistant. So Eskiesk is really a neat setting. The other thing to realize is from the valley to the peak at Eskiesca is a kilometer. So we have this remarkably entire preserved volcanic edifice that's full of these remarkably mineralized pipes and intrusion patches. Uh, and that's really what makes um, Iska Iska very unique. And as we progress with more drilling and the geophysical data will help us out immensely. I think you're gonna, we're gonna continue to grow and refine uh, the overall picture here, but this thing just keeps getting bigger and bigger 
and bigger. Um, and when you consider we only started drilling in September, we're sitting here in June, um, the pace we're going at is incredible. Uh, have a top team down in Bolivia, but it's the size of the system. Everywhere we go, we hit mineralization and we keep pushing the limits out. And, uh, you know, the number one requirement when you're exploring, understand your system early, and then you can plan and optimize your drill program. And, and that's precisely what we're doing. So the next uh, three to six months, I think are gonna be very, very exciting. I'm very confident we'll get to a, a significant resource by late fall as long as the labs get us the analysis. And that will be the, still be a start. It won't be the finish of the process. There's an awful lot more areas we need to test in this you know, quite amazing complex. Brilliant. Look, Bill, I, uh, thanks for humoring me and, and, and talking me through. I wanted to hear it from the horse's mouth, as it were. Um, take take that the right way um, to try and understand how you're how you're approaching it, and, and I do appreciate you getting into the detail with me, Tom. That wasn't too bad, was it? No, it was good. I, there was one thing I'd like to add, though. Um, you know, I've heard sort of rumors a little bit here and there about uh, that this uh, this system is inundated with with uh, you know arsenic, and it, it could be really problematic. Uh, you know, when you mine, trying to separate. Uh, I'd like, you know, maybe we could address that, those initial fears if, if, if Bill would want to, uh, you know, just uh, brush over that at this stage. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, this kind of cropped up because there was a mention of it in Charlie Malawi's, uh report. And those samples came from a high-grade gold bismuth zone. And when you see higher arsenic here, it pops up periodically. And it's almost invariably associated with high gold. So where did the gold come from? Because ISCA ISCA is a high sulfidation system. High sulfidation systems are low in arsenic. And that's what we see in the vast bulk of samples. But it does kick up locally where you hit high gold. So where did this gold come from? Well, there's a stage of mineralization uh, called orogenic gold, which is in the basement sandstones. So there was some type of orogenic gold deposit, probably not that big, um, but it was there when the Iskiiska caldera complex formed. And so that mineralization has got caught up uh, into the overall system, especially when things have been structurally upgraded and moved around. So, so it really is a local phenomenon. We, of course, track it. Um, but if you look at the bulk of data on, on arsenic, and we analyze for that for all our samples, um, most of it is very low. Uh, but of course, what happens is people glom on a few samples and they think, oh my God, that's the whole distribution. Well, it's not, it's, it's very localized. Right, we, we've seen these sorts of stories come up before, and you know companies have different approaches to it. I mean, just you're not—I know you're not dismissing it, and you've gonna you're gonna have to do some work to try and understand it better because at the end of the day, that's going to affect your economics if you can't come up with a solution. So, how do you? 
go through that process of trying to understand it between now and, you know, say, a 43-101 or a PEA? Well, I, I think as we have, um, you know, when we do the mineral resource estimate, as you can imagine, this is a fairly complicated one to estimate because we're going to have to do a model for silver, do a model for lead zinc, a model for tin, and, and we will do a model for any deleterious elements as well. So that, because, you know, the fact is, yes, it is there in certain areas. It's not that extensive. Uh, you still need to know where they are and you have to deal with it. The other thing is you need to do some mineralogy to figure out exactly where that arsenic is held too. For example, if you have arsenical pyrite, it may not be an issue. We know there's some sections with arsenopyrite. Um, so yeah, that'll be part of the overall um, resource estimation uh, procedure. Um, and maybe there will be uh, a few sections that will not be that favorable or they'll need a bit of a different process. Uh, this is a really, really unusual one because you know you can go along our drill hole assays and suddenly you'll see cadmium zoom up or bismuth zoom up, or you'll have a high lead zinc silver come out of nowhere, or like hole six, we had 73 meters of 0.43 tin. And you go, wow. So um, that's one of the reasons why we've had uh, Micon involved in this whole process early on. Um, and, you know, they're doing some preliminary analysis. We're getting to a point now where we can start to actually do some initial analysis to get some feeling. But one of the things that your readers need to appreciate is that this is not like a big structure where you've got a clear direction you're dealing with. You're, you're dealing largely what we refer to as an isotropic medium. In other words, there's no real directional bias here. Um, and uh, so it, it, it makes it, uh, you know, uh, tricky. Ultimately, you know, the overall cutoff grade will be determined by some sort of Bach NSR, but the actual distribution of the uh, uh, metals, um, you know, that'll have to be looked at on an individual basis. And you will also have, like, if you're mining central, you're going to get tin, uh, silver and tin with some gold. Interestingly, when we go deeper, uh, we get more gold. Um, but that's not the same gold as that high-grade gold that is uh, with, with the arsenic. So, uh, but anyway, we're aware of that. Um, we certainly will um, track it uh, and it'll get considered in the resource, but people need to understand that that's something that's inherited. It's not part of the big mineralizing system. The values are are quite really quite low. Tom, why why did you bring it up? Why did you mention it? Um, we've just heard, you know, just uh, in the media and such. Some people are talking about that this is inundated with arsenic, and uh, you know, I mean, I just want to because I just think it's it's something that really should be addressed. Um, and that we are addressing it uh, via the, you know, the testing with through Micon, 
uh, and that from our standpoint, you know, it, it, it should be explained. That's all. But what do you think people are worried about? Oh, just that it'll create so much cost and separation, separating the, the arsenic that, it, you know, it could become, could prove to be a non-economic uh, situation, which is, you know, we want to make it very, very clear that that just is not the case because as Bill explained, the arsenic, if there is higher levels in certain instances, it's, it's due to, you know, some of the, you know, concentrations of gold that we might see here and there. But even if there was, I mean, they have such things as autoclaves, which are expensive, but there are different techniques uh, to deal with it. And it's probably 5% of the overall system. So I just want to clear that, uh, very clear that it is, it is not something that our, the investor should be concerned about. That's right. why I'm bringing it up. Per perfect. And so, I mean, but g given there is a narrative going on out there, and whether it's 5% or... 50%, you're, you're going to have to spend some time and effort dealing with that. Does that change the way you come at this project? Because of market perception is something you need to manage as well as what you're doing in the field, isn't it? Well, I, I think the best way to manage these things is, you know, Micon is doing an updated NI43101 report. One of the issues that we will address, have them address in that report the only way to look at it is put the data in. You know, you people read uh, one press release or read one page in a report and they go all nuts. Um, the only way to counter that is to put the data on the table and say, um, I, I mean, if I showed you a, a, a graph of arsenic in the deposit, you see a classic ski jump where the vast majority of the values are pretty low. Uh, and that's the reality. So. Um, and obviously that's the advantage of having an independent consultant. Uh, you know, you can choose to believe or not believe me, but, um, you know, certainly, uh, uh, as, as we've discussed with Mike on, there's no doubt there is some, yes, we have to deal with it, but it's, it's not like the whole deposit is full of it. That's, that's a distinction. So you will see that. 43101 in the near future. And one of the other reasons I want to get that done is that paves the way for the resource estimate because the resource estimate is just adding one chapter to the report that's already written. So, I, I mean, I've done loads of these reports myself and uh, I know how to do them very, very efficiently. So, so that's all in the process. You know, we have... Um, preliminary MET tests going. We, we did some uh, initial work with the laboratory in University of Rural. You know, these guys have spent their life doing polymetallics and, uh, you know, we're getting some, uh, it's early obviously, but certainly getting some encouraging results. Uh, and we'll expand that, um, you know, sort of testing. So by the time we get to that resource, uh, report, you'll obviously see a statement on resource, but we obviously have to bring in potential recovery into the mix. So you've got that. that and once we get to that, then, you know, the mining, you can start looking at, okay, I know that zone's there. How do I sort of mine it? But, uh, you know, as, a, as I always say to people, uh, 
you know, there's a tendency to focus on, hey, we got to do all the engineering studies and get to a pre-fees or a feasibility. The reality is that what drives uh, a PEA, a pre-fees or a feasibility study is not in fact the engineering, it's the status of your resource. Yeah, You can do uh, all the engineering you want, but if yeah. your resource isn't there, um, you're not gonna go anywhere. And I'll guarantee you that won't happen on my watch because I've done this many, many times before. So Matthew, I just wanted to make a, another a quick point. You know, when Bill mentioned, uh, you know, a tin intersection of 0.43% over 70 meters, just so that your audience understands, uh, you know, when we look at it per ton of rock, that value, like for instance, 0.43, I mean, basically it's very simple math. You just double it into pounds. So it's like 0.43 is 8.6 pounds of tin per ton of rock, 8.6 times 15 US a pound. That gives you a valuation of over $100 rock per ton. So, you know, this is why I'm really sort of fired up also on the tin component. Well, yeah, and it's also it's it's topical at, at the moment, um, guys. I'm just sort of conscious of time, um, and like I say, Bill, like thank thank you for humoring me and getting into the weeds with us today. Um, Tom, I'm sure we will see you again soon, um, especially when some of these uh, assay results start coming um, through. And it'd be great to sort of see how we are going to approach the rest of this year, or you are going to approach the rest of this. Um, yeah, um, it's it's been it's been a good one so far. Keep it up, guys. Thank you very much, Matthew. Yeah, thanks a lot, Matthew. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.